The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in the 8th chapter and the 12th verse. The 12th verse in the 8th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I come back again to this great word, this great statement, in which we have a kind of summary, a synopsis, if you like, of the great proclamation of the Christian faith, the Christian gospel. There are these summaries of the whole gospel to be found scattered about here and there in the, four, in the pages of the four gospels and in the book of the Acts of the Apostles and in the various epistles. And it is good at times that we should stand face to face with one of these great comprehensive statements, lest we lose the great centralities of the faith. There can be no doubt that one of the greatest dangers confronting us in every realm and walk of life at the present time is the great danger of missing the wood because of the trees. There are so many problems, so many particular difficulties, and we are looking at them and investigating them. The world is doing it. The governments are doing it. The church is doing it. We've got endless committees and subcommittees. We are looking at this aspect and that aspect. And here we are, so confronted by details that our greatest danger of all, I say, is to miss the great central fundamental principles of the faith. And the result is that the world gets a false impression as to what Christianity really is. You might very well, if you went by the newspapers, think that Christianity is nothing but a negative protest, always protesting against something, whether it be drink or Sabbath observance or whether it be what certain other countries are doing, whether it be war and all these various other things. The notion is given that the message of the church is just some such negative protest against something or another that is taking place. But that, of course, is a complete travesty of the gospel. It isn't even to begin to understand this great and glorious faith. Here's the gospel. I am the light of the world. This is the thing to look at. We mustn't spend the whole of our time in examining the darkness. Here is one who's asking us to look at him because he is the light and the light of the world. Now I would remind you again as we come back to this great statement, that the important thing about it is the Lord himself. We are talking so much about Christianity and Christendom and Christian teaching and the Christian point of view, but we've forgotten the person. And there are people who have never known this person. They're only interested in aspects of his teaching and what they imagine to be his teaching. But what makes a man a Christian is that he knows the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the person. It is the person that saves us, not his teaching. It is he himself and what he's done. Now he reminds us of that I, and then he reminds us that he and he alone can do this. 
Ours is a very exclusive gospel. There is no second. There is no helper needed. I, he says, and I alone, that's the emphasis of the original, I and I alone am the light of the world. I'm not interested in Confucianism, or in Buddhism, or Hinduism, or Mohammedanism, or anything else. Why not? Well, they're unnecessary. When I'm looking at the sun, I'm not interested in candles. We don't need that addition. And this idea that you have world congresses of faiths and get to the insights of this view and that view, it's a denial of this gospel. Jesus Christ is enough and alone. He and he alone is the light of the world. Well, now we're examining this great statement, this exclusive statement. And do you remember the Apostle Paul repeats it in writing to the Galatians? He says, Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, let him be accursed. A man who isn't sure of what he's preaching has no right to be in a pulpit. I'm standing here tonight because I'm as certain and sure that what I'm preaching to you is the truth of God. If I were not, I should go down the steps and go out of the building. We're not here to theorize. It isn't my business to set before you what I may think or believe. I am here to expound the scripture. And this is what he says. I, and I alone, am the light of the world. Now, we've shown you how that is true. If you take the whole world situation as it is tonight. There is no understanding of the terrible international situation which confronts us apart from this book. All the other theories have been made to look utterly ridiculous. Let's never forget this and let us make certain that the world knows it. The people who denied this gospel last century, your poets and your philosophers and statesmen, who turned their backs upon God and said they could make a perfect world, they said without any hesitation that the 20th century was going to be the most glorious century the world had ever known. They were certain of it. They were filled with optimism, all your Darwinians and others, and yet look at the world as it is. They've all been falsified. They've been made to look ridiculous. There is no understanding of this world this evening except in the light of the teaching of this book, which is a manifestation of the light that comes from this person who said, I and I alone am the light of the world. But then we went on last Sunday night to ask another question, which is this. You say, says someone, that this old world of ours is hopeless, that it cannot be improved that it's heading up for judgment. Very well, says someone. Well, well, what about me? Where do I come in? Well, thank God we are able to meet you at that point. I am the light of the world, he says. Then he that believeth in me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Yes, though the world as such is doomed. And let me repeat it on the verge of this so-called summit conference. While man remains what he is and a creature of sin, you will never abolish war. Never. Whence come wars amongst you, asks James, and he answers even of your own lusts that are within you. This is the plain teaching of the scripture. Oh, you may patch up something for the time being. There may be a lull. Yes, you've heard that many and many a time before. 
But the problem of war and all these troubles is this deep problem of sin. And any tinkering with it which doesn't recognize that cannot possibly deal with it and cure it. Haven't we known many of us who are old enough to remember these things? The excitement and the optimism about conferences in the past. Do you remember the Locarno Pact? When was it? 1928 or something like that. I remember the excitement. People said, at last, we are banishing war. They even said in the First World War that this was the war to end war. But how ridiculous do all those things appear by this evening? Now, now, my friends, this isn't to be pessimistic, you know. This is to be realistic. Isn't mankind foolish? It says on the one hand it's not interested in the gospel. Why? Well, they say it's fairy tale. It's make-believe. I'm a realist, says the modern man. I'm a man of facts. I'm a man of business. I'm not interested in your fairy tales, your pie in the sky. I want realism. Well, my friend, if you want realism, you'd better come quickly to the Bible. It's the newspapers who are fooling you and telling you fairy tales. It's your politicians who are trying to persuade you that they can put the world in order. They cannot. They never will. This is a sinful world. It's a world under judgment. And it's going to be judged. I don't know when. Nobody else knows when. There may be another war, there may not be another war. But I know that while the world lasts, there will be trouble, there will be confusion, there will be pain, there will be evil. This world will always be a terrible world because man is a, is a creature in sin. But, and here's where the gospel comes in. Though that is true of the world, there is hope for the individual. And this Christian gospel is a message for the individual. He that, he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. So you see, I'm not here tonight to tell these statesmen what they're to do tomorrow. There are many men in pulpits who claim that they've got the ability to do that. And I've no doubt many of them have been doing it this morning and will do it again tonight. And the conferences that are being held this month, they're all sending their resolutions. Men, you see, who can't run a local church can tell the governments what to do. Men who cannot stem the religious and the moral rot in this country claim to have the ability to tell the men who are in these high positions of responsibility and government exactly what to do. It's so simple. How monstrous it all is. No, I don't understand it. I'm not aware of sufficient number of facts to express an opinion. I am commissioned to speak to individuals who are in this congregation. And to tell them that there is one who has said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In spite of what is true of the world, my friend, you and I as individuals can be delivered and set free. Let hell come, let the bombs be used, let a war come. I and you, if you follow this light of the world, will not walk in darkness, but you'll have the light of life. How does he do it? Well, I was trying to show you last Sunday night that he does it by holding us face to face with the first and the most vital thing of all, and that is the knowledge of God. The world is as it is tonight because it doesn't know God. If mankind only knew God, it wouldn't be behaving as it is. If men and women everywhere in every country had some conception of the almighty God, they'd all be humbled Beneath his almighty hand, they don't know him. Our Lord said it. O oh, righteous Father, he said, The world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. 
And these, the Christians, have known that thou hast sent me. The world hath not known thee. Oh, that's the tragedy. And the business of preaching is to tell men and women about God. Not, I say, to give advice to others, but to tell the world about God. It is Christ alone who reveals God. He said, he who hath seen me hath seen the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You'll never know God by philosophy. You'll never know God by mysticism. You'll never know God by being religious and working hard in your church or in the world. You'll never know God except in and through this person who said, I and I alone am the light of the world, the one who can bring you to a knowledge of God. And he tells us that God is holy and righteous and just and of such a pure countenance that he cannot look upon sin. That's God. Not the God of your modern psychologists and philosophers, but the God who has revealed himself in this book and supremely in his Son and finally upon the cross on Calvary's hill. But thank God, a God of love and of mercy and of compassion, who if we humble ourselves before him and repent and turn to him, will shower his love upon us in Christ and set us free. We need to know God. But you know, even that isn't enough. We need to know ourselves. And the moment a man gets to know himself, he begins to seek God. That's why people are not seeking God tonight. That's why the world is as it is. Because it doesn't know itself. It doesn't know the truth about itself. Man is not only ignorant of God, he's ignorant about himself. You see, the very fact that he has this ignorance of God is a proof that he is fundamentally ignorant about himself. The moment a man begins to get worried about himself, he turns to God. John Henry Newman's hymn that we've just been singing puts it so perfectly. I was not ever thus, nor prayed that thou should leadst me on. I love to choose my path. That's how he was. I loved the garish days, and spite of fears, pride ruled my will. He wasn't seeking God then. He thought everything was all right. He didn't need God. It's only when a man has a view of himself, he begins to get desperate, and then he seeks for God and cries out for him. Oh, for light, he says, lead, kindly light, amid the encircling gloom, lead thou me on. But the world isn't seeking light tonight. The world's having a good time. Never had it so good. Look at this pleasure mania, all this sports mania. You wouldn't think there was any trouble in the world, would you? Look at the crowd shouting, laughing, jeering. Look at the drinking, gambling, all the pleasure mania, I say. With the world as it is tonight, what's the matter? Well, the trouble is, I say, that man doesn't know himself. He doesn't know the truth about himself. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with us? Oh, let me ask the question, what is man? That's the question that needs to be asked. And once more, you see, we come to the same answer. You'll never know what man is until you look at this person who said, I, and I alone, am the light of the world. As you can't know God without him, you can't know yourself without him. Now, let me prove this to you. The great question, I say, the fundamental problem this evening is that man doesn't know the truth about himself. And that's why he's behaving as he is. And that's why he can be complacent on the very verge of hell. He doesn't know what's happening. 
is utterly fool. Well, I can prove it by his views. What is the modern man's view of men? And the answer is that there is a great group of people who've got no view at all. Is there anybody like that, I wonder, in this congregation? Have you never sat down and asked yourself, what is men? Have you ever sat down and said, what am I? What is life? What am I doing in this world? Have you ever faced that question? There are millions of people who have never faced it at all. Day comes, day goes. Read the newspapers, off to work, out to pleasure, home to sleep. They've never asked the question, what am I? What is a man? What is life? What is the whole purpose of it all? What is the world? What's it all about? What's it all lead? They've never faced. They've got no view at all. They've never even thought they might very well be animals. But there are others who do try to think about this, who are equally wrong. The most popular of all the views today, I suppose, is that man is a reasoning animal. That man is really nothing more than an animal, but that he does happen to have this power of reason, which the other animals haven't got, or at any rate have in a, in a very rudimentary form. Man, they say, is just like all other animals and animals, but he has this power of reasoning. There's nothing more than that to him. They say when he dies, well, it's like any other animal dying. That's the end of the story. That's the finish. Man is just an animal that happens to have developed this cerebrum, this higher part of the brain, a little more than all the others. They've got a, a kind of cerebrum, but they haven't developed it as man has. But that is the commonest and the most prevailing view, isn't it? That man is just an animal that comes into this world and eats and drinks and does various other things and then dies. And that's the end of the story. Then there are other views, I mustn't keep you with these, the so-called biological or psychological view of men, which would explain men entirely in terms of his physical makeup. You've noticed how this is in coming increasingly into vogue. You've noticed the defense in certain criminal cases that... Uh, the man couldn't help doing what he did. Well, why? Well, because he's so made, he's so constituted, he can't help it. You see the relative proportions of these glands within him. What is man? Well, he's nothing but the resultant of the interplay of these forces. There's no such thing as responsibility at all. And uh, everything can be explained more or less in medical and biological terms. I think I may have told you before of an article that I read in a very learned medical journal which uh, claimed to explain quite easily why Mr. Neville Chamberlain was trying to appease uh, Hitler and why he was so proud of his efforts at Munich in September 1938. Men said it's quite simple. Of course, subsequent history, his subsequent story showed us the thing. Poor Mr. Neville Chamberlain died of a cancerous growth. And obviously this thing was already in him in September 1938. And it was already affecting his judgment and his balance and his understanding. So the tragedy of Munich was entirely due to this malignant growth in the system. And again, President Roosevelt at Yalta, that awful blunder that he made there, what was it due to? Well, it wasn't a mistake of statesmanship, nor of judgment. The man was already suffering from this arterial condition that eventually killed him in April 1945. So, you see, there is no responsibility at all. Everything can be explained. A man's not a bad man. He can't help himself. He's so made, he's so constituted, or he's got this particular disease. Now, that's the popular view. It's coming in increasingly. Biological, psychological. And then there are others who'd explain it all in terms of economics. 
Man is nothing but a victim of circumstances. Whether you have a warlike nation or a quiet nation is purely a matter of accident and chance. Is there enough food or isn't there enough food there? You're familiar with this teaching. It's the strival, the striving for survival and the survival of the fittest, as it were. And all men and all that happens to him and all he's ever done can be explained quite easily in terms of economics and the pressures of history in various local circumstances and conditions. Professor Arnold Toynbee is the high priest, as you know, of that particular view. Well, now, there are some of the modern views of men. Uh, here I'm to say once more this evening that they're all wrong and that there's only one answer to the problem, what is men? And it is in this person who says, I and I alone am the light of the world. You look at Jesus Christ and you see God. Look at him again and you see man. You'll never know God except in Christ. I say more, you'll never know men except you look at, look at Christ. Look at me, he says. And then you'll know what men should be like, and then you'll begin to understand how men should live. Look at this person, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, look at him. Here's a man who lived in the same world as you and I live in. He had the same human nature, subject to the same stresses and difficulties and problems, was tempted in all points like as we are, yet he was without sin, mixed with men and women, worked with his hands, had all the ups and downs, the disappointments and the frustrations of life. But look at him. Don't you see something different about him? He could stand up at the end of his life and say, No man convicteth me of sin. Here is one who gave an absolutely perfect obedience to God, who kept God's law in every detail, missed nothing at all. Here was one in this sinful world that you and I are in, and it was exactly the same then as now, who knew God who spent a great deal of his time in prayer and in talking to God. Here is one who had a strange understanding and a strange power. Look at him. What is he? Well, he's a man. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And yet is he not absolutely different? What is the difference? Why are we not like him? Here is a man, obviously a man, living his life as a man. And yet I say, we are struck by the difference between him and ourselves. What's wrong? What's the matter? What is the difference? Well, in our text he tells us. The difference is due to the darkness. He that followeth me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Yes, but if you don't follow him, you are in the darkness. And this is the point, you see, that he is making, that all our troubles are due to this darkness, to this ignorance of ours. We are ignorant about God, yes, but we are ignorant about ourselves also. And he has come into this world as a light in the world that men no longer should walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What is the business of light? Well, the business of light, as we've already been told in the third chapter of this gospel according to John is to show up the darkness. Listen, everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. 
It is the business of light to expose darkness. Listen to the Apostle Paul saying precisely the same thing. He says it in the epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 5. He says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore, he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. And he does. He gives us light on ourselves. Of course, the law of God in the Old Testament and the prophets had done it up to a pint. But if you really want to know the truth about men, you've got to come to Jesus Christ. Here is the light shining in its fullest meridian. Here is the light in all its effulgence effulgence from the face of God. And he casts his light upon men. What does he tell us? Let me summarize it very briefly. He first of all tells us exactly what man is. What is man? Is he but a reasoning animal? No, no. Man is not just an animal. Well, what is he? He is a unique creation of God. He is one who has been created in the image and the likeness of God. That is what he tells us about men himself and through the writings of his servants, the apostles, to whom he gave light and knowledge and understanding by means of the Holy Spirit whom he gave them. Man is unlike all the animals. He's been made upright. He stands upright on his two feet. Why? Well, to show that he's different. He is the Lord of creation. Man has been made in the image and the likeness of God himself. He has been made uh, with a capacity for fellowship with God and for communion with God and for enjoyment of God. You've never seen an animal praying? But man is capable of fellowship and communion with God. Not only that, man, he says, is a responsible being in the presence of God. The animals are not responsible. The animals act according to their instincts, according to the law of their nature and their being. That's why the birds come back in the spring and go back again. They don't sit down and reason it and say it's about time we went. No, no, they're moved by these inner laws. They're moved by these instincts. But not so men. Men has been endowed with this capacity of thought and of reason and uh, ratiocination and meditation and logic and understanding. He can contemplate himself. He can examine. He's got all these potentialities within him, and thereby he's different from all the animals. But above all, I say, he was meant for communion with God. Now, this is how our Lord puts it. Man is a living soul. That is the thing that finally differentiates men from the animals and puts him in a category on his own. Don't you remember how this blessed person who says he's the light of the world puts it? Listen to him. He said, what shall it profit a man though he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 
Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? You see, that's what he said, looking down on men and women like ourselves. And they were all out for pleasures and for possessions and for prizes. And having looked at them, that is what he said to them. What shall it profit a man though he gain the whole world? That he's so rich. Oh, that rock fellow who died last week is but a pauper by his side. And he wins every prize in football and in everything else. He's got them all, all the cups and the medals. What shall it profit a man though he gained the whole world? He's got everything that men are craving after. What shall it profit him if he loses his own soul? Ah, he says, this is a thing, the thing that makes a man a man. And so when the rich young ruler came to him that afternoon, you remember what he said to him was this, My friend, go sell all that thou hast and give to the poor and come, take up thy cross and follow me. He says, that's the thing that matters, you know. You're asking me what good thing you must do. You want this something that I've got? Well, there it is. It's not something that can be bought with money. It's not something that you can do in and get rid of all, come after me. It's worth doing, he says. Sell everything for the sake of this. What is this kingdom of God? Well, he says it's like unto a merchantman seeking goodly pearls. The moment he sees this pearl of great price, sells all that he may buy it, is like a man finding hidden treasure in a field. Sells all that he may buy that field to get that treasure. That's the kingdom of God. The soul. He that loveth his life, he said, shall lose it. And you know what he means by loving life? He means living for life in this world. He means having a good time, plenty of food, plenty of drink, plenty of sport, plenty of sex, plenty of everything that this, he that loveth his life in the, shall lose it. But he that hateth his life in this world shall find it. That's what he says, this one who claims to be the light of the world. What he means is this, you see. What makes a man is the fact that he is the possessor of a soul. This thing we can't see. This thing we can't analyze. This thing that the anatomist cannot discover. But here it is within us. This immortal thing that is within us, that's bigger than life and bigger than the whole world, it's a profit for a man to sell the whole world in order to safeguard this. That's what he tells us about ourselves. Are you concerned about your soul, my friend? Have you ever thought about your soul? I can tell you why the world is as it is tonight. It is because it doesn't realize that man has got a soul. They're only interested in the body. They're interested in food and drink for, this, for that reason. They're only interested in the body. They're interested in sport and pleasure, only the body. They're interested in abolishing war. Why? Well, to save the life of the body in this world, for this is the only world, and if you're killed out of this, that's the end, there's nothing more. There they end. That's their philosophy, and they're quite logical and quite consistent. Yes, but you see, they know nothing about the soul. There are people in this world, as there always have been, they say, that they would even live under the most terrible tyranny of communism or anything else, rather than fight. In other words, you see, the body is more important than the soul. They know nothing about the soul, but this one who says he is the light of the world, 
When he throws his light upon men, he says the thing that makes a man a man is that he's a soul. What shall it profit a man though he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Well, very, very well, let me ask my second question. Why then is man as he is? And the answer is in one word, sin. What is sin? Well, according to this teaching, sin is something, first of all, that is universal. That is what our Lord taught about it. He said that everybody was a sinner. You know, it was because he said that that they killed him. The world recognized sin in a sense. The Pharisees recognized sin, but they divided the world into two groups, those who were sinners and those who were not. And they said that they, as Pharisees and religious people, were not sinners. The sinners were the publicans and sinners, the harlots. But here stands one who says, I am the light of the world, and this is what he says, you're all sinners, Pharisees as well as publicans and harlots. Did you notice it in that reading from the 16th chapter of Luke's Gospel? He said, Ye are they that justify yourselves before men, but God seeth the heart. For that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. Here is one who convicted all men of sin. The whole world, he says, is guilty. Pharisee and publican brought to a common denominator. Well, what is the cause of this? The Apostle Paul, you remember, puts it in these words, There is none righteous, no, not one. The whole world lieth guilty before God. Nobody is without sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now that is what the light of the world says about men, that every one of us is a sinner. Well, why are we all sinners? Why should sin be universal? And that question is again answered in the Bible in the same way. We are all born sinners. We are all born in a state of sin. We don't come in a neutral state into this world and then go wrong. We are born wrong. We've inherited it. It goes back and back and back until you come to the first man who was tempted of the devil and fell. That's the teaching of this book. The fall of men. The devil coming in and tempting and men falling to the temptation and thus becoming a sinner and having a perverted nature and passing it on to his progeny. And the result is that every man ever born into this world has been a sinner. There hasn't been a single exception. I don't care what country you go to, whatever the circumstances, whatever the background and conditions, every man is a sinner. Sin is universal. We are all sinners. That's what he says. And nobody else says it. Those who don't believe his teaching say some are good and some are bad. He says all are bad. Everybody's bad. Some are more respectable looking, but they're bad in their hearts. Sin is universal, but what is its nature? Well, he says it's a darkness, it's a death. What sin does to us is to make us spiritually dead. We are all dead in trespasses and sins, as the Apostle Paul puts it. What's it mean? Well, it means that the spiritual side of our nature is not functioning. 
Man doesn't realize that he's a spiritual being and meant for this communion with God. He doesn't know God. He's not interested in God. He regards God as his enemy, as someone who's against him. That's his blindness, you see. His spiritual nature is dead. He's spiritually ignorant. He doesn't know the truth. He doesn't rejoice in it. They crucified Christ when he was here. Though he did so much good, they put him to death. That's blindness, spiritual death and blindness. But obviously it's something even worse than that. It means that there is a moral perversion. That the very moral sense of men is twisted. That he loves darkness and hates the light instead of loving the light and hating the darkness. Indeed, we can put it like this. Man as a fallen creature in sin is under the power and the dominion and the sway of the devil. Later on in this very chapter, our Lord said that quite explicitly to these people. He said, you are of your father the devil and the works of your father ye will do. My dear friend, did you realize that? Why doesn't the world believe this gospel this evening? If the world did believe the gospel, you know, there'd be no need to have the summit conference. If every man in the world tonight were following Jesus Christ and practicing the Sermon on the Mount, there'd be no armaments, there'd be no threat of war, there'd be no threat of final disaster. The world would be perfect. It would be paradise. The solution is here. If only all men became Christian, here is the teaching before them. Why don't they believe it? Why are we doing something exceptional in this country at this moment by being in the house of God listening to the preaching of the gospel? Why are the vast majority of people drinking and eating and gambling and indulging their sex and doing everything else save listening to this? Why do they ridicule this? Why do they curse Christ? Why do they dismiss Christianity? What's the matter with them? I'll tell you what's the matter with them. It is the devil, the god of this world, who hath blinded the minds of them that believe not. They're slaves. He's bludgeoned them. He's blinded them. They're not free to think. They see nothing in it. They're blinded spiritual. In the darkness. He that followeth me, he says, shall not walk in the darkness. But until a man does follow him, he is walking in the darkness. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know where he's going. He is blind to the most beautiful thing in the world. He doesn't see anything in the Son of God incarnate. He says, away with him, crucify him. Don't talk to us about your Christ and his blood and his cross. He hates it. Why? Well, I say it's because he's in the darkness. He came unto his own and his own received him not. The darkness comprehended him not. That's the nature of sin. And what is the end of sin? Well, I'll tell you what the end of sin is. And the world knows nothing about this. It is Christ alone who can enlighten us about this. What is the end of sin? The end of a man who is a sinner? He is under the wrath of God. That is the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't something I'm saying. He said it. He is under the wrath of God. Why? Well, because he's lost his soul. 
Go and ask Jesus Christ why he ever came into the world, and this is what he'll tell you. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Man is lost. He's lost his soul. He doesn't know he has one. He's not aware of his ignorance and darkness. He doesn't know God. He's lost his soul. You, my friend, everyone who is by nature has lost his soul. He's a lost soul. He's gone astray. He's in the hands of enemies that are going to destroy him. And he's under the wrath of God who made him in his own image. And man has defaced the image and debased it. And what is the end of that? The end of that is eternal death. The end of that is hell. That's why I read just now the story of Lazarus and Dives. I wouldn't dare say a thing like this were it not that it was uttered there by the Son of God himself, this one who said that he is the light of the world. Do you see the picture? Two men. One man, a very rich man who fared sumptuously every day, never thought about his soul, didn't believe he'd got a soul, didn't worship God, lived for this world, lived for pleasure, enjoyment, had everything, and had a marvelous time. But there at the gate is a man with sores which the dogs are licking. He's a humble, he's a poor man, he's a beggar, and the dogs are licking his sores. Yes, but he's a man who knows he's got a soul. He's a man who realizes he's responsible before God. He's a man who seeks the face of God. He's a man who worships God. He's a man who lives to the spiritual and who says it doesn't matter whether I'm a beggar or what I am. What matters to me is that I'm a soul and that I know my God, my maker and creator, to whom I'm going when I die. And you notice the difference in their deaths. The rich man died and was buried. The other man was carried by the angels into Abram's bosom. But you know, that isn't the end of the story, unfortunately. This is the end of the story. Here is this worldly man who took the modern view of man, that he hasn't got a soul, that man is for eating and drinking, having wealth and a good time, not worrying about God and eternity. There he is in some terrible torment in a flame with a terrible thirst, and he's frantic. He doesn't know what to do. He suddenly sees Lazarus in Abram's bosom. And he asks Abram to send Lazarus with just a drop of water to cool his parched lips and tongue. And you remember what he was told? That there was no traffic between the two regions. That it was a final separation. That a man's eternal destiny is determined in this life and in this world. No second chance. No movement from hell to heaven after death. No universal redemption because God is love. But a great gulf fixed. And fixed to all eternity. With never an end. One or the other, forever and forever and forever. At last the man awakens to the folly of his worldly life and asks for somebody to be sent to warn his brethren. That is the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Why is the world as it is? Why are men and women living as they are? Why are they ignoring God and never turning to him in prayer? Why don't they believe in Christ? Why are they living to the flesh in this present world? Why is there one and only concern to preserve the life of the body and to prevent the use of the bomb and war, to save this body? Why don't they ever think about the soul and this eternal destiny? Why? Because they're in the darkness. They don't know it. They're ignorant of it. They say they don't believe it. The truth about them is they're blinded that they can't see it. Here is the teaching of the light of the world. He says a man's life is determined here. And your soul is either saved in this life and in this world or not at all. Are you aware, my dear friend, that you have an immortal soul within you that's going on beyond death and the grave? Do you know that you are going to spend your eternity either in hell or in heaven? Does that concern you? Don't you see that you ought to be infinitely more concerned about that than whether you're going to be killed by a bomb or not? Whether you're killed by a bomb or not, you've got to die and you're going on to eternity. Oh, the folly of men that tonight are thinking only about the way in which they're going to die rather than in the fact of death and what follows death. The end of sin is eternal misery and torment. Have you seen that? Have you realized that about yourself? That's what the Son of God is telling you. He says, I am the light of the world. Nobody tells you this but me. This is his message. He came to save you from that. So I end with just this word. He says that he and he alone can save us from that. The Son of Man is come. He left heaven and its eternal bliss. He left his Father's bosom, as it were. He humbled himself. He took on him human nature, suffered the contradiction of sinners against himself, went to that cruel death upon the cross. Why? Well, my dear friend, to save you and me from that hell, from that endless torment outside the face of God and the bliss of paradise and of glory, to save you from the devil and from this evil perverted nature and to remake your soul and to make a true man of you again in the image of God as God made men at the beginning. That's why he's come. He is the light of the world. He's the only door to this. He's the good shepherd that giveth his life for the sheep. Have you realized that? This is Christianity. Stop thinking about the world. You and I can do nothing about the world. You can pass all your resolutions in all your conferences. Not a single statesman will even take the trouble probably to read them. You've wasted your hours. What's needed is a personal deliverance out of the world that is under condemnation. It's our only hope. But thank God it's a very real hope. The world is doomed. But you and I can be saved out of it. We needn't share that terrible doom that is coming for certain whenever it comes. He that followeth me shall not walk in the darkness. 
But shall have the light of life. Have you got it? Do you know that Christ has died for your sins? To save you from that doom. And do you know that he'll give you life anew? And make you a new creature. Make you a partaker of the divine nature. And you'll follow him and walk in his light. Through this wilderness that we call the world. And he'll be with you as you cross the river of death. And he'll finally take you by the hand and present you faultless. Before the presence of God's glory. With exceeding joy. I and I alone am the light of the world. There isn't any other, is there? Do you see a glimmer of light or of hope anywhere else? There is none. Here is the knowledge we need. It's the truth about us, every one of us. We are all sinners and we know it. And we are ignorant of God and of ourselves and of hell and of all that awaits us. But the final tragedy is to be ignorant of him who so loved us that he came into the world and gave himself for us that he might deliver us from it all. The light has come. Turn to the light. Oh, may God grant that the Holy Spirit has been enlightening anyone who came into this congregation tonight in the darkness, living only for this world, thinking only about this world, never realizing he had a soul, and that beyond death lies that eternal destiny which can never be changed. As God opened your eyes, God grant that he may. Ask him to do so. Fly to Jesus Christ. Ask him to receive you and to enlighten you. And he will. No one ever asked him in vain. He said himself, He that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Turn to the light. And become children of the light and children of the day. Amen.